0: You are listening to the podcast for Inforum and Innovation Lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumsF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumsF. Good evening. Welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Peggy Ornstein, and I'm the author of Boys and Sex, which is out in paperback this week, and also Girls and Sex and Cinderella Ate My Daughter, among other books. And it is a huge pleasure for me to be in conversation today with Tracy Clark Flory. Tracy Clark Flory is a journalist at Jezebel who, like me, has written extensively on how sex has shaped every facet of societal discourse. And we're in conversation today to discuss her wonderful new book want me a sex writer's journey into the heart of desire if you'd like to ask tracy a question please ask it in the chat on youtube or the comment section of facebook and we'll try to get through as many as we can uh, toward the end of the program now let's get started I'm so excited to talk with you, Tracy. Me too. Congratulations <laughs> on the book coming out. Thank you so Today, much. Right? Today, right? Today. And this hey, is the perfect birthday. way to celebrate. Yeah. Aw, really nice. <laughs> well, let's just dive in. So in Want Me, um, you really look at something that is a, a, an issue really dear to my heart, which is the ways that girls and women can prioritize desirability or being desirable over their own desire, and that's something that you have dealt with personally, and the book's very title, Want Me, um, is obviously a reference to that, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that that whole wish to be wanted while simultaneously not ever asking yourself what you want and, right. and where that comes from.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, um, the art critic John Berger famously said, Um, men look at women and women watch themselves being looked at. And I think that dynamic really permeates our culture. Um, Women are supposed to be gazed upon, they're not supposed to gaze. And then they're encouraged to sort of to work at making themselves desirable to sort of reduce their wanting to being wanted. Um, And (laughs) it's a sort of, acceptable rerouting of desire um, through men through straight men through being seen through being wanted and that sort of rerouting I think is only helped by the fact that girls as you've written about (laughs) learn very early on that their sexuality is a liability Um, and I really love what you know Deborah Tolman has written about the dilemma of desire, that adolescent girls very early on come up against their sort of embodied sense of pleasure and desire and how their sexuality is, how there are all these material and social dangers that are associated with their sexuality. And so it's no surprise then that girls and women often end up feeling sort of disconnected from their own bodies, from their own pleasure from their own desires, not even sort of knowing what those desires are beyond wanting to be wanted. Um, And so my experience as an adolescent and teenager, as I was, you know, especially online, beginning to sexually explore was I sort of framed it as um, I was trying to understand and investigate what boys and men wanted, what they wanted from me, and so I was able to kind of distance myself from my own sexual curiosity, my own sort of hungers, um, and so I think there's a way in which the sort of you know wanting to be wanting wanting to be wanted functions as a cover story, and I think it's you know just one of many cover stories that girls and women are basically made to come up with in order to feel safe in being sexual. Mm.
0: Interesting. I always think about, um, I mean, it's, it's, I love Deb Tolman's work too. And, and also it's just such an old um, dilemma. I, Simone de Beauvoir talks about um, the moment when a girl becomes other to herself, Mm. which, which I think is very much like that. And so I think about, you know, her doing that in the forties. And I think about you coming of age in the 1990s and you're really the, the cutting edge. I mean, I think Tracy, you're the oldest millennial you're
1: the, Thanks ancient, for reminding
0: you. the ancient millennial <laughs> that know, you are true. um true. Yeah. that you um that you came of age in in the 1990s and so you you really were on the cutting edge of a new um kind of set of pressures a new kind of set of ideas around what this all meant in terms of girls creating a thing creating a personality or creating a, a persona to be wanted and i wonder what specifically um made that period such a confusing time for young women.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was this (laughs) bizarre juxtaposition of like, on the one hand, you have girls gone wild infomercials (laughs) late at night. And then on the other, you have narratives around girl power and breaking the glass ceiling. Like, I feel like I I grew up around these messages around, you know, you can be anything you want to be, in the bedroom or the boardroom. (laughs) And I I emerged from that um kind of believing that you know sexual empowerment meant being wanted by men and being like men. Um that sexual empowerment was something that you sort of got through proximity to men's power. Um and you know I I I think that the last two decades of feminist academic research has really helped me to kind of make sense of it, where researchers have really talked about how the traditional um, double standard of you know he's a stud and or um, and she's a slut have sort of loosened, um, which is, seems good in some ways, right? Like the sort of realm of acceptable sexual behavior has has broadened within. You know, monogamous, um, <laughs> heterosexual constraints, but it's broadened nonetheless. And at the same time, the range of ex- it's the range of acceptable sexual behaviors, and also the range of sexual behaviors that are sort of mandated and expected. And so there, you know, have been introduced all these new pressures. Um, and so you have like the old, um, you know virgin slut dichotomy has sort of become this ambiguous continuum where you know you could also be considered a prude, which is just, you know, good luck navigating that. Um, and so, you know, um, also there, there arose in the 90s, these neoliberal feminist ideas around um, sexual empowerment that really sort of shifted the narrative from sexual empowerment is something that is about social justice and collective action and collective gain to something that's really about personal um, advancement, personal improvement, sort of self-help. And um, so I think that this sort of neoliberal narrative of sexual empowerment, which um, the researcher Lena Baichung has written a lot about, that's that's really helped me to kind of make sense of, of the you know, driving narrative for me coming of age, both in the nineties and, and definitely beyond where, you know, um, I didn't want to kind of face the fact that the, the sexual playing field was, um, uneven you know, I wanted to believe that I could sort of set out and if I made the right decisions, if I seemed in control of my actions that, you know, I could, (laughs) that sexual empowerment would be mine. And then obviously I found that was, you know, not so much the case. And, um, I think that illusion of empowerment of control has really sort of become even like a, um, it's become a a defense against the traditional sort of judgments around women's sexual behavior. And so young women have really been pushed into this, um, you know, unfortunate situation of, of basically, you know, (laughs) having to sort of sell their experiences as being more positive um, and more empowering than they are.
0: Right. Oh, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, that, that just rings so true. And that idea of self-objectification being sold as the ultimate empowerment Mm -hmm. um, for young women too, Um, you know, that, and, and yeah. Um, And I, you know, I remember a a girl once saying to me, when you were talking about that continuum of um, virgin and um, slut that, and, and prude, and she said, you know, usually the opposite of a negative is a positive. But when you're talking about girls and sexual behavior, it's like two negatives. Right. so how do you find a place to stand in that?
1: Right. What a shitty setup.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) And, you know, and right into then, you know, in your early twenties, you were a big defender of hookup culture. Yeah. And maybe you need to define what hookup culture is, but, um, but you, eventually uh, really kind of had to grapple with its disappointments. And and I wonder um, if you can talk about that whole process and kind of how you think about it now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so in my early 20s, I think it was 23. And this was like, I wanna say mid, mid-2000s. And it was a time of, um, you know, I felt at the time there was a lot of hand-wringing about young women's behavior. And I felt like a lot of commentators were, you know, it felt to me that they were basically asking women to sort of police men's behavior um, and to not take seriously their own desire for adventure and exploration. And so I found myself really pushing back um, against those narratives. And so I came out with a piece, um, a personal essay that was titled in defense of casual sex. And, you know, I think the main um, you know, feeling behind that piece was like, I can go out and have sex and it's okay. And I'm okay. And, um, I'm having a good time doing it. And I, and there was plenty of that that was true at the time, right? Like there was plenty about my experiences with casual sex, which were enjoyable, which were thrilling, you know? Um, and that's valid. That's a valid part of sex and sexual exploration. But as the years went on, I (laughs) had to face up to the fact that, um, you know there was more that i wanted from my sexual encounters um that i was not experiencing authentic pleasure that i was faking orgasms 99 of the time <laughs> you know and orgasms are not the only measure of good sex but you know they're a, a important measure i think uh <laughs> so you know, I got to a point where um, I really just, you know, admitted to myself that I was not getting what I wanted from those encounters and that this sort of that sense of, um, you know, empowerment, um, the, the, the satisfaction that I got from feeling wanted, um, you know, it started to feel too narrow. It started to feel like that was just not not enough it, that I wanted more than all of that and then i also came to face what i didn't want to face which was the unequal playing field right and that was like part of it i think was coming to terms with that and sort of grieving grieving the reality of that that you know i wanted to believe um i wanted to believe that you know um that (laughs) liberation was mine that you know sexual empowerment was mine that i could just go out and get it Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of really face like, you know, the, the, the busting of that illusion. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I want to go back for a minute to the, to the orgasm faking situation. Um, because that was one of the things when I was writing girls and sex that, that just like stopped me cold. Um, and you know, first of all, the language had shifted. I could always tell when somebody, um, in an audience was around my age because they would come up to me afterwards and they would go, um, whatever happened to, I'm responsible for my own orgasm. And they would always do that fist pump thing. Um, because we grew up in the wake of our, we were the children of our body, the our bodies, ourselves generation. And somewhere along the line, it sh- shifted from women having orgasms to being given orgasms and mm-hmm. that bugged the crap out of me. Yeah. Um, but then I would talk to these girls and I'd say, you know, do you masturbate? So, and they would go, oh, no, no, I have a boyfriend to do that. And I'd be like, well, that's the same guy who's rummaging around inside of you like he's looking for a set of car keys. So um, <laughs> I don't think that's really, you know, that's not working. Yeah. working so well for you. And then I, when I looked into the research, uh, there, there was a, a long term study of college students, a longitudinal study that showed that the percentage of young women who were faking orgasm had been steadily rising since 1990 and was now at 70% today. And I don't know. I mean, I'm just, you know, curious about what that experience was like for you, where that came from, and then what it was like to acknowledge as a sex writer that you had been,
1: you know, bacon all this time. An imposter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not an imposter. Not yeah. An
0: imposter. But that that it was a different priority.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and I and I did, I felt like an imposter because I mean there is a moment I write about in the book, which is, you know, Dan Dan Savage. Asked me to give advice to a woman who wrote in because she wasn't having orgasms, and you know, I he asked me to give her advice, and I, and so I gave her advice, but from one orgasm faker to another, you know, like it. So there were definitely these moments where, as a sex writer, I I, I did feel like an imposter, but I, yeah, I think that the sort of shift around expectations around women's orgasm is really interesting because. You know in the 60s and 70s feminists necessarily you know fought to sort of reclaim women's orgasm and to emphasize the importance of clitoral pleasure and you know all of those things that were that were absolutely necessary and then of course as so often happens um that sort of battle was you know twisted and um into a new expectation a new demand where um you know orgasm came to stand in for a symbol of sexual liberation and it became just another thing that you had to sort of perform um and so yeah i mean (laughs) uh the research shows that it's very common that half of women um have faked orgasms other studies put it even higher i think that seems pretty conservative even at that um and that they do it for all sorts of reasons they do it because They want to expedite bad or painful sex, um, you know, sex that they just want to get over with already. Um, They do it to feel desirable. They do it to give pleasure to their partners. And there there is a real, you know, what they call an orgasm gap between um, men and women and heterosexual pairings and lesbian women are much more likely to have orgasms during sex, and so there is something about heterosexual se- uh, sex and the scripts, the normative scripts that come along with that. You what know, I don't could that be. <laughs> could that be? <laughs> Maybe the overemphasis on you know PIV penetration yeah. for one. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep.
0: But also, I mean, you know, we like you know the, the whole book is about this, but in that needing to be wanted thing, our own body parts are never na- named. You know, we rarely say clitoris. We don't learn about our orgasms. We don't learn about masturbation. And then you couple that with um, with that pressure to perform. And there's I, I, one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is how there's always like a correct kind of female orgasm, you know, mm-hmm. like it's the vaginal orgasm. It's the multiple orgasm. It's the G-spot organism, orgasm. It's the squirting. Like there, you always have to have the right sort. And there's, a, I, I don't think men have a right and wrong sort of orgasm. I think. they Right. Just come.
1: Right. I mean, I hope this is not too risque for this program, but I was just writing about, um, I mean, I've written about squirting before, but I was also just writing about, um, uh, Deep throating and and actually the the theory around that of that part of um, part of why that arose is that it it um, it makes women's pleasure legible in that Mm. it uh i don't want to get too graphic but you know that there are all these there's a sense of like sort of like the mystery of a woman's body and of a woman's pleasure the sense that her pleasure can be faked and you know i think squirting is one of these examples of a way um that to sort of like really um you know (laughs) vividly kind of um portray pleasure um, and to, you know, mimic a man's pleasure also to sort Mm -hmm. of put it in um, a man's sort of terms and to make it to make it legible. I like this idea of like that women's pleasure has to be sort of, um, you know, morphed in some way in order to even be comprehensible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That it has to be uh, visible and measurable. Yeah. Or it's very threatening. It's very threatening. Yes. Um, Yeah. I have some Norman Mailer quote there, but I can't remember it all of a sudden Um, (laughs) about his, his, how threatened he was by the clitoral orgasm. It was crazy. Um, Anyway, uh, that said, um, (laughs) speaking of Norman Mailer, um, you were, um, again, a kind of, at, at a kind of cutting edge as, as as a very old millennial of yes. um, adolescents <laughs> who grew up with kind of, you know, video porn at, at your fingertips. Um, and I wonder what you think uh, the impact is or, or was of, of coming of age online in that way for young women and, and especially with internet porn. Yeah. Um, and, and if you want to, you can throw your dad under the bus here a little bit. But...
1: Oh, sure. He's probably, <laughs> he's watching right now. He's, I'm I sure, bless his it.
0: heart for, for, you know, for, being willing to be who he is and and support (laughs) you. That's, I I love your dad.
1: I, yeah, me too. It's very lucky. Yeah. (laughs) He's very supportive. Um, yeah. I mean, the impact of porn is complicated, right? Like I think that, um, as a young person, I definitely approached porn as a guidebook. Um, you know, I did, I understood you know I understood that people were watching it for entertainment but I sort of I took that like this was an ultimate representation of especially what men want this is this is literally what men want from me um and you know did not have much of a complex or sophisticated understanding of course as a teenager of fantasy um and how fantasy works and so I did turn to it as you know instructional um and aspirational and um and that gave me a lot of you know vivid sort of source material to work with and i definitely used that source material and i applied it in my sex life and i think that um you know it, it that did not help me get any closer to experiencing authentic pleasure during sex on the other hand i think that that porn was a really vital part of my you know early um, especially in my 20s, like my sexual exploration and my sort of, you know, getting to understand my own desires, my own body, my own mind. Um, it was this sort of, you know, I, I took the back door in that I was in pursuit of understanding men's desire and sort of mastering men's desire. But in the process, sort of, you know, through that cover story, I was able to kind of um, uh, start started exploring on my own and i think you know to me that was a really meaningful part of um my you know journey of self discovery like you know it was it was um i feel like i almost had to kind of trick myself into it like that i you know and and actually that's really common i've learned that researchers have found that that girls often talk about um watching porn as research oh yeah um, you know yeah which mm-hmm. yes you must have come across that a lot yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that it's, it's not for pleasure, that it's to sort of understand how to be desirable. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: I also just uh, saw a, there's, there was a nationally representative um, survey out uh, a couple, a few weeks ago by some of my favorite researchers um, that found that among 18 to 24 year olds, the most often source cited for helpful information on how to have sex with a partner was pornogra- internet pornography yeah. and that, that came out ahead of talking to your partner.
1: Yeah, um, right. Yeah. So. Well, because that requires vulnerability, right? And that sort of requires like ask, yeah, asking questions. And um, oh.
0: <laughs> I know the good news, the good news, the good news was that uh, among the younger kids, the 14 to 17-year-olds, they cited their parents as the most helpful source of information on sex. So it was like a tremendous good. opportunity. Um, yeah, parents at that point, but to be aware that you know you got to address this, uh, we can't not address it. I mean, I think you have to actually things, talk about it. Yeah, yeah, I think that one of the things that I that's really clear in your writing, um, is that you have to be talking about this with your young person now.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I to to throw my dad under the bus, sorry, dad. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like I write in the book about finding my you know outspokenly feminist father's porn and. You know to me um that i didn't know how to make sense of that as a teenager like to me this was like oh this is in total contradiction with everything he's ever told me about what he like what he values and wants um from women and you know we i don't think we'd ever talked about porn in my household other than i remember my mom like vaguely warning that like i might find scary videos on the internet um and you know things that i didn't really want to see um but there was no, there was no conversation about fantasy. I mean, I think like, to me, there's a real, um, cultural sort of illiteracy for lack of a better word around fantasy that we don't, um, we don't talk about how fantasy works. We don't talk about what it can mean for people. Um, and so, you know, I certainly just did not, I, I was not prepared to sort of process it make sense of it to make sense of you know the videos that i was seeing and to um to to do anything other than sort of interpret them very literally as like this this is this is sexy sex
0: <laughs> well and i think also i mean to be fair to be fair to tracy's dad um yes. i don't think at that point that the that things had tipped so yeah. that you 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 know i mean i think now if you don't talk about internet yeah. pornography with your child you are actually Setting them up for some real, you know, unfortunate consequences potentially, and it's just too big, you just can't not right. address it anymore. And yeah. I don't think that it happened. I think the, it was you know, all new, it was
1: all so new. I mean, it was this was like back in like you know, I mean, I think it was like 97 or 98 when yeah. like was it time or newsweek had um you know like the i remember the cover with the kid that was like you know lit in this ghostly way who was at the computer and it was you know all about like predators online like there was it was this like very intense time of like the internet is new and we definitely didn't have have like a sophisticated way of talking about it yeah. yet
0: and hopefully we're developing that Um, I mean, you took it a little further than most. You became a sex writer. Uh, And also, (laughs) um, Uh, at the same time, and and not that this is in any way a contradiction, but also uh, feminism, you know, even as these other forces were at play, um, feminism was a a major early influence on you in your own home, um, growing up in Berkeley, in the culture. So how did that influence your sexual coming of age?
1: I mean, it was huge. Like, I think when I think about the book, you know, feminism is like one of the big characters that sort of looms large, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. feminism, there's porn. Um, And, you know, feminism was my sort of introduction to, um, you know, um, critiques around body ideals and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, at the same time, I don't know, it was interesting, like it, like early on, um, it was very much about the sort of critique. And then I I think at a certain point um, there became this sort of tension where feminism, you know, I felt like I had to sort of reconcile my feminist beliefs and sort of feminist analysis with my experience of sex and sexuality and start asking questions like, you know, can I reconcile the fact that I watch porn and I'm a feminist or that I'm a feminist and I have these desires that seem on the surface to be in contradiction with my actual beliefs. Um, and, you know, it was really like stumbling upon um, thinkers like Carol S. Vance um, and a lot of the thinkers that came out of the Barnard conference on sexuality in 1982, I believe. I was um, there. Wait, you were there? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no big deal. As a, as a, you know, a, a, a kid. Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh my God. That's yeah. really cool. That okay, well, have to, yeah. I'll have to ask you about that later. Mm. <laughs> That's really cool. Or fake. we could talk about it now. Yeah. That's awesome. That's right. Yeah. I mean, wow. yeah, the, a lot of the thinking that arose from that conference, honestly, like once, and I stumbled upon it, far too late. I think, you know, this often happens the sort of reinventing the wheel where I was sort of processing these ideas and dilemmas. And, you know, it was really only years into that, that I was, that I stumbled across all these other thinkers who had come long before me and who had, of course, already sort of processed a lot of it. Um, But a lot of those thinkers sort of, um, I mean, that felt like really overdue validation um, and sort of permission because the way that um, they talked about you know, they really talk through these, these ideas, these difficult ideas of like, you know, as a woman desiring in a patriarchal culture, like, you know, are our desires necessarily a result of patriarchy? And, you know, if so, like, do we get to desire? Do we have to wait until, you know, the revolution is complete? Like, um, should we re-educate ourselves, our desires, our sexuality? Um, and so, um you know that that was a, a major influence those thinkers were a major influence um but i spent a lot of time sort of swinging between various ideas um within feminism around you know sex and pornography um because there is a diversity of of ideas within feminism counter to popular belief often yeah. um and so it was like you know there was a trying on of ideas and i eventually sort of came to you know landed where i felt comfortable but um yeah feminism has just always has been always really deeply tied to um my sexuality just in that it's been um you know a, a lens of analysis yeah. pretty much
0: mm-hmm. yeah and I mean our bodies are ourselves yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 still um really true and uh and that idea of well first of all I just want to say I mean I think it's really important to even... You're not reinventing the wheel. You're taking ideas that had been discussed in one context and moving them forward. I think of it yeah. more, to, to stay with that kind of metaphor, kind of guyish metaphor, you're moving the ball down the field a little bit yeah. um, in a new era. But also, I mean, I think that that issue of like, what would authentic female sexuality be is really thorny. and And I <laughs> wonder if you... You know, you struggle throughout the book with that idea of of an authentic sexual identity, and and you know, what is it?
1: Right, <laughs> it's a really big question. What is, it, question. What is it? Tell me. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are sociological theories around, you know, um, like you know, the performance of the self that would probably argue that there is no authentic self. That you know, there that we basically are ourselves kind to being through these, you know, sort of social performances that are, you know, moderated by cultural norms. And, um, you know, Judith Butler has written a lot about this. So it's, it's, um, I think my feeling is that, you know, there's no self that there's no pre-cultural self um, when it comes to sexuality, um, that we're all products of cultural influence. um, That being said, I think that it's possible to sort of, you know, examine oneself and one's experience of, you know, sexuality and desire. And, um, you know, for me, I think (laughs) the most essential question is sort of like, it's, you know, does this, does this feel good? Do I feel it, period? Do I feel it in my body? Like these very, like just fundamental, most basic, um, the sense of embodiment. Um, that, you know, I spent so much time really sort of analyzing and critiquing and, um, you know, you know, are my desires feminist enough or not? And, you know, can I reeducate myself? And, um, where I ultimately arrived was this feeling of, yes, does it feel good? (laughs) Does it feel good? And for Mm -hmm. me, that's, you know, everyone's going to have a different answer, but for me, that's, um, a pretty important place. That's a, a pretty important, um, measure of authenticity is, you know, is it pleasurable? Does it feel good? Can I feel it in my body? Am I in my body? Period. So you feel like you did find that for yourself. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I did. And I think, you know, I think the feminist influence honestly was, um, as much as feminism was this sort of influence of, you know, where I was critiquing and analyzing, I think it also in the end was this force of sort of acceptance because there have been so many, Feminist writers who've um, who have really leaned on that the importance of um, of you know Susie Bright of pleasure desire of I, I'm now I want to summon the, her quote which is um, um, she said I think it's I don't sit in my bed with my dildo trying to rationalize anything. <laughs>
0: would be in my pantheon of feminist saints if i could have one
1: absolutely she's she's yeah yeah. fantastic that's 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 someone to aspire to yeah Yeah. for sure yeah Yeah. (laughs)
0: um i want to move from women to men for a second because it as you as the book goes on you know as you as you said already tonight you sort of were on this quest to master straight men's desires without necessarily knowing your own um, but even where that's concerned it seemed like you found out that in some ways you had misunderstood those desires yeah and can you talk a little bit about
1: that yeah yeah I mean setting out as a sex writer especially but also in my personal life like you know I think I I was um, anticipating a cliche of straight men's desire. I was anticipating, you know, superficial, superficiality, unemotionality, you know, um, and writing about sex, interviewing men, um, about their sex lives, um, you know, time and again, I basically, you know, came up against, um, the opposite, the opposite of, of what I expected, which was, you know, tenderness, vulnerability, anxiety, um, and God, like tenderness, vulnerability, anxiety, these those were not the things that I expected to find. And so, um, you know, especially like writing a sex advice column for a period there, like I, I really had all of these really amazing moments where people were trusting me with their most personal mm-hmm. private experiences and stories. And that was illuminating in general, not just around men, but I think- um, I think the process of that really, you know, helped me to uh, adopt, a, a, you know, a more nuanced perspective on quote unquote male desire and to realize that there is no male desire, no straight male desire, that <laughs> there are desires, desires, plural. Um, and um, I think also, you know, <laughs> the my sort of misinterpretation of porn was an, another key piece. Piece of that where, um, you know, interpreting porn as a literal representation of what men want. Um, not, not understanding the very funny ways that fantasy can work, that it's not fantasies are not something, whether they're in porn or whether they're something that's imagined, they're not always something that you can just literally interpret, um, in a straightforward way that they can have the sort of opposite meaning of what they would seem t- to have. Um, And that, for example, fantasies of dominance can arise from, you know, feelings of being um, too much, feelings of anxiety, um, you know, that sort of thing, these like softer emotions that I hadn't really anticipated. Um, And so, you know, also in the end, like, you know, I spent all this time kind of trying to prepare um, for this sort of cliche of straight male desire. And then I end up with marrying a man who is very much not that cliche, right? Like, and I'd spent all this time really kind of (laughs) studying a realm that ended up to not be very relevant at all (laughs) in a lot of ways. And so um, there have just been all of these, um, all of these surprises along the way, um, you know, and I think that's, that's been the real irony is, is, um, (laughs) <laughs> really preparing my, myself for like something that didn't exist, mm-hmm. um, ch- kind of chasing after this illusion of straight male desire um, that's presented in our culture. That's, that's sold to men and it's sold to women too.
0: Yeah. And okay. So you have, do you have a sort of, I, th- I think something that um, I had to also deal with in a book, which is I, I wrote a book that was a memoir about infertility. And then in the end, the kind of days like machina comes down and I get pregnant spontaneously and have a baby. Um, And and it was a little uncomfortable because I didn't want that to be the kind of, you know, moral of the story, the happily ever after. Yeah. And you, you know, you're going along being the sex writer, having casual sex, doing all these kinds of things. But then the thing that really kind of becomes the, you know, the beautiful thing that you find is marriage and motherhood. And part of me was like, yay, Tracy. I mean, I I know you and I know, you know, I know that that is true. And part of me was like, "Uh oh,
1: yeah, right. Like that can't, that can't be the end. Like, that's not the, like, this isn't a Prince Charming situation, right? Like a feminist Prince Charming.
0: (laughs) How did you deal with that in in life, in the book?
1: Um, Talk about that a little bit. Right. I mean, in life, I'm totally fine with it. (laughs) In life, I'm very happy with it. Um, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I, um, I really, you know, talk about wanting to be wanted, like I tamped down my desires often in in this sort of hookup culture realm. Um, I silenced any desire for anything more than what I got. And so, you know, whether that was more pleasure or whether that was more commitment, or more, you know, intimacy, I really sort of, um, I shut that down. So I think there were a lot of ways in which, you know, yes, I was going out there and having casual sex and, um, you know, uncommitted sex, and how great, and it was in some ways. And yet, I also had desires beyond that. Um, and, you know, didn't really allow for those. And so, um the sort of shift from that into monogamous marriage was, you know, it, it, it wasn't a a total about face really. Um, it was more of a, um, coming to terms with some of what I wanted and also uh, coming to feel more comfortable with being vulnerable. Um, I think that I just, for a long time, um, you know, um, sex especially felt very adversarial and it felt like, you know, I really had to sort of have my armor on. Um, And I then got to a point where I actually felt like I really, you know, not only could I put up with some vulnerability that I actually wanted it. And so, um, yeah, you know, so that has felt good in my personal life as for the context of a memoir where that's like the end of the story arc, i hate it (laughs) i mean i hate it in that like i hate that that's i i don't want to reproduce the the happy ending um and so i you know i try to kind of moderate that in the end of the book by basically talking about um i'm not sexually empowered i'm not like this is my happy ending this is the end that really this is about um I mean, for one, in terms of empowerment, um, you know, I don't think you could say that you're empowered, that you're sexually empowered if you feel like you've sort of found shelter from the storm. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of how I feel. Like, I feel like my 20s were the storm and I've, I've found a partner that I'm comfortable with, that I feel safe with and um, that I can communicate with um, and who's a feminist, <laughs> which, you know, is it's challenging. Um, it's challenging to find that and. But so I don't feel like um, that sense of sort of safety or having like, you know, kind of dodged a bullet like that, that doesn't feel like empowerment to me. It isn't empowerment. And I think that, um, you know, I try to write in the book about how, um, you know, sexual empowerment can just cannot be achieved individually. That, That the limit, you know, of course, we individually can sort of strive to have greater pleasure and you know, greater connection with our bodies and all of that. But, um, you know, necessarily that is going to be a limited journey when it's done individually, when it's, you know, again, that neoliberal idea of like shifting it away from the collective movement um, and really, you know, emphasizing sort of self-help and self-improvement. And so, yeah, I really... um, I don't, I don't, I also think that what's important for me, what I've tried to do with the book is to emphasize that like the most important journey is, is not to be corny, but it's, it's, you know, my relationship with myself, that it's not about my current relationship. um, That it's about what I've found in terms of my relationship to myself and knowing myself. Um, And, you know, also that, it isn't about arriving at a final destination, that it's really about a journey that that, you know, one thing I've definitely found is that sex sort of changes over the course of a lifetime. And um, so it's not about sort of achieving a final sort of sexual self, that um, it's really about kind of being present for that journey over the course of a lifetime. And who knows what that looks like?
0: I love that. Um here's something I want to know what it looks like. I want to know what it looks like to be or what it feels like or what it is like to be writing publicly about sex as a woman on the internet. Mm.
1: (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well, one, I have learned by now to not read the comments. So that's good. I've, I figured that out. Um, (laughs) a
0: bracelet that said that.
1: Um, Oh, that's great. great.
0: (laughs) Don't read the comments.
1: Don't read the comments. Yeah. Just don't read the comments. It's, it's taken me over a decade to learn that, but I've learned it. Um, so that helps, but, you know, at the beginning of my career, I definitely, I was writing for, um, Salon's feminist blog at the time. Um, and you know, the misogynistic trolls that haunted the comments, Threads on my articles um, were, I mean, just impressively um, angry. And I would, the way I sort of dealt with it at the time was I would print out the worst, the very worst comments, just saying, you know, the unimaginable things, previously unimaginable things. And I would um, post them on my my fridge at home because I was sort of willing myself to find them funny. And I remember my mom at the time being very concerned because I don't, she didn't think they were funny and (laughs) she found them pretty threatening. And, um, you know, I think years later, um, I started to take them more seriously because I started to sort of observe, um, acts of violence, acts of public violence that were associated with, um, anger and resentment around women's sexual behavior. Um, and, you know, also, um, started to observe the ways that the, um, you know, the manosphere as it's called, um, which is really just, a you know, loosely connected, um, sites on the internet that are, um, you know, united in their anti-feminism, everything from PUAs to pick up artists to involuntary celibates, incels, um, that sort of thing. That um, I became the subject of of some of those, um, you know, blog posts in that realm where they were sort of debating my sex life, um, <laughs> you know, turning to personal essays of mine and um, sort of using me as a case study um, and uh, You know, the anger there was very clear and um, yeah, it started to seem less, less amusing Mm -hmm. (laughs) at that point. So um, yeah, I mean, I would say that there, aside from not reading the comments, a positive development has been that there's just more awareness about harassment of women online, right? Like, you know, Gamergate happened. Um, This is part of the, you know, mainstream cultural conversation. Um, And so while it is a problem and not enough is done about it, it's at least something that we sort of know how to talk about now.
0: Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you one last question before I um, take questions from the um, viewers, and that is, you have a son, a yeah. little, little boy, yeah. um, and uh, I'm just wondering, as you think about him growing up, him coming of age in this culture, and how you, th- you know, how do you think about raising him in terms of sexuality, authenticity, really, if he, if he is somebody who is interested in women, you know, what that would, how do you raise that boy? How yeah. do you raise your son? I feel I, like there's no more feminist act than raising a great son.
1: I mean, I'm so excited for it. <laughs> I really am. I'm, I, you know, I'm definitely going to be the mom who like cannot wait to have the sex conversation, not the sex conversation, but like the first of many ongoing conversations around sex. Um. So, and about porn, all of those things. Um. You know, I think, Um. I mean, honestly, we're already sort of, um talking to him about it in terms of just like in an age appropriate way around you know consent with as experts say around tickling and that sort of thing like if if he says stop i stop and i said oh you said to stop i'm not going to tickle you if you said to stop you know so things that are totally age appropriate people freak out when you talk about like you know sex education for toddlers but like really like you're talking on that level of just like understanding like bodily autonomy on on that level of play even right so Um, I, um, I mean, I think around porn, especially like I, I want to talk to him, um, about it. I want to, um, I think one thing that's really important is, um, to normalize kids' curiosity, um, and the fact that they will pursue, um, sexual information online, that they will, you know, want to sexually explore online and to, to really come from a place of, Um, normalizing that and valuing it and sort of being able to, to, um, talk about it from that starting point and also, um, to be able to, you know, share without too much information, um, you know, that, that, you know, his dad and I have also (laughs) gone through the same things that, you know, we were, at least I was not so much his dad, but that I was a teenager on the internet too, um, and to establish some common ground around that. Um, But mostly, you know, I think one of the most important things is that it's not it's not the sex talk. It's just ongoing conversations around sex that happen, you know, naturally and casually um, because sex is a part of life.
0: There you go. There you go. That is absolutely. That that's it. That (laughs) that is the best thing. Okay, let's take um, a couple questions from the audience here. Uh, Somebody is asking I don't know if you've reported on this at all. Um, what the what you think the effects of COVID um, will be on sex behavior, and whether people whether that's sex with masks on.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I actually I had looked into doing a story on this um, a couple months ago. So, and I was um, asking around to some sex therapists and researchers to kind of see what their vibe was on this, you know, what what is COVID doing for sexual relations? Um I, you know, there were some surprising things like that people were um kind of reporting like surprised um delight at, you know, having a distance date and sitting six feet apart from each other on a, a bench and not touching, like that there was this sort of um level of excitement in slowing everything down um and a sort of thrill around that um a sort of the tension of it um and i remember talking to a friend of mine a single friend of mine who was dating um you know going on distanced dates through tinder um and she was really finding herself relieved that at the, the end of the night um, she was finding that her dates were, um, instead of going in for a kiss and just sort of assuming that that was okay, that there was a lot of negotiation around, even like, can we hold hands? You know, right. that that on just like the most basic level of, um, just really simple communication around consent and comfort um, say, that maybe should maybe be happening. Teach people, yeah, about consent. Maybe
0: this that will be a, one of the positive consequences
1: that's what we can hope right yeah that there's some upsides at least yeah yeah
0: interesting interesting okay um oh so somebody's asking about you know how um they say those younger millennials that they're having uh that they're having less sex that we're in a sex recession Mm -hmm. um do you think that's real and um why i guess gen z why do you think gen z is having if so, less sex.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely seen, I've seen the, the sort of trend stories around that. And um, I don't know how much I sort of um, I don't know how much I believe it. I mean, I think there's such a tendency to sort of have these generational sort of big generational stories about how, you know, kids these days are having sex in some new and surprising and scary way um, where, you know, there might be some real evidence at hand, but, you know, it tends to be drastically overstated, right, where it's in a sort of fear mongering way where, you know, some of the headlines I've seen have definitely been like kids these days, they're not having sex and, you know, where it's the sort of opposite of what, you know, I was <laughs> going through. As they sex. are having sex. They're not yeah. having sex. They're having too hard. much sex. Um And so, you know, I, um, (laughs) I guess I kind of, um, I, uh, take all of it with a grain of salt, but, you know, I think it's, I think it's possible. Um, I think, I think it's possible that there might be something there.
0: Well, my understanding is that there's a couple of things. One is that, um, a lot of those stories are asking specifically about penis vagina intercourse. Ah. They're not asking about oral sex. They're not asking about a lot of other behaviors. So that's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, they're not looking at how those behaviors are changing. And the other piece is that if your primary um, way of interacting is in hookups, you are not going to be having sex as much or as consistently as people who have relationship based sex. So uh-huh. I think that those are a couple of the reasons. I mean, some people say, and they're watching porn, you know, maybe, but I think right. those other two things are actually really pretty salient reasons why um, why that's the case.
1: And that could be a real positive, I suppose, in a certain sense, like, you know, expanding sort of sexual repertoire that, uh, you know, decenters potentially PIV sex could be good.
0: Potentially, although, I mean, a little inside, but the, but the, um, you know, since the disproportionate situation hookups is heterosexual in, in heterosexual hookups is women performing oral sex on men. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. So wow. Well, but never mind. at any rate, that's my,
1: that's has <laughs> been part, part of
0: my understanding. We're not talking I'm, about
1: cunnilingus. Okay. Not yeah. so much. Not so what much. a surprise.
0: Um, I mean, we can, but we, aren't. <laughs> uh,
1: well, we would, but we, yeah. would.
0: we <laughs> would talk about it. You and I, uh, I also uh, there's a question this is uh, as a journalist, um, how do you identify the stories that you report on and and what over time have you found what have been some of the most fascinating stories you've done? Some of them mm. are in the book, I think
1: yeah, yeah the book is is pretty much a roundup of the most fascinating um, in terms of how I identify stories and how I pursue them. Um, Honestly, I, especially lately, I I sort of pursue my own obsessions. That's sort of my current marching orders at my job, um, which are the best kind of marching orders to have, which is just pursue what, what interests you, pursue what you can't stop thinking about. Um, but that's really, I mean, that's really been kind of the way that um, I've, I mean, I've been lucky enough to be able to just kind of ask the questions that I want to ask, um, and, you know, on a certain level, just selfishly pursue my own interests. Um, but I think that's, you know, I think there's, that can be really revealing, um, you know, that if, if I'm interested and obsessed with something, you know, it most likely there are going to be other people who feel the same way. Um, and so in terms of, gosh, some of, some of my best reporting, um, there's been such a a wild range. Um, you know, I've reported at a, an orgasmic meditation retreat, um, which was a wild experience. Um, I have, um, reported on a, a kinky fox hunt in the woods of Santa Cruz, um, (laughs) a sort of adult version of hide and seek. Um, I've reported on sexual healers and, um, many a porn set which has been very educational i mean i would say that like reporting on porn sets has been um for me some of my favorite reporting just because obviously like coming from my own personal history growing up watching porn and having my sort of misconceptions about it and my own interpretations of it and then the reality of stepping foot on a porn set and seeing how much it is a performance, it's a production, it's entertainment, it's an illusion. And being able to really see how that illusion is um, created, you know, seeing the details of like, um, cedophil being used uh, for the money shot, like, you know, there's something about that, that's so, so powerfully busts the illusion, right, that I grew up, you know, believing in um, and, you know, seeing performers uh, negotiate consent behind the scenes that you don't see on camera or asking for lube, um, you know, that's edited out in the end, that sort of thing. So that those have been some of the most powerful moments for me reporting.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, somebody asks here, uh, they said, we've been talking a lot about porn. True. True that. Um, and how that's affected the sex lives of young people. Uh, this person would like to know what about the rise of dating apps and how do you feel like they've affected how people view relationships
1: and sex? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something I can't, um, speak to much from personal experience because I, I mean, there was, there was okay. Cupid when I was single and dating, but I was just before Tinder. Um, and so I just completely missed out on that experience, which is its own unique thing. Um, I mean, I, you know, I do tend to sort of believe um, just from, you know, friends experiences that, um, you know, there is a way in which um, there, it can sort of feel like there's just, you know, limitless number of people at your fingertips and that it can sort of make it feel um like there's there's less sort of interest in commitment or you know that um and that there's more competition um and so that that aspect of it feels um to me very real and and like a major shift um and then at the same time i've you know i have plenty of friends who've had very positive experiences with it and who feel like they've you know i think they've helped connect people with Um, you know, like-minded people with similar interests in a way that, you know, only the internet can, um, and you know, that, um, can't be discounted, right? Like that it, there is that positive aspect of it too. It's not, it's not all bad. Um, but it is, it's, it is a complicated, uh, new reality.
0: Okay. Last question. Um, it's a tradition here at Inform to ask all our speakers the following, and I'm glad that you have to do this and not me. Um, what is your 60 second idea to change the world? Tracy, go.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to steal from um, the feminist researcher that I mentioned earlier, Lena Beichung, who um, who's writing on you know neoliberal ideas around sexual empowerment um, is so fantastic. And so my idea is that um, as she writes about that, we remember what sexual empowerment used to mean, um, which is that it's a collective struggle for collective gain, that it's about social justice, that it's not an individual pursuit that, um, you know, of self-improvement. And so to remember that, um, to remember that definition of empowerment rather than the commercialized sort of, um, commercialized, you know, neoliberal feminist, um, version that is so popular these days.
0: That's beautiful. Well, thank you to my friend and my neighbor and my colleague, Tracy Clark Flory for joining us today at Inforum and the Commonwealth Club. And we'd like to remind our audience that Tracy's new book, want me a sex writer's journey into the heart of desire which you can see behind her there uh, is available now at your preferred bookseller and if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the commonwealth club's efforts to make virtual programming please visit commonwealthclub.org online i'm peggy ornstein thank you and stay safe You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org.